Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Ann Corcoran, proprietor of the website Refugee Resettlement Watch and author of the new monograph, Refugee Resettlement and the Hydra to America. Ann, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. How does someone like yourself living out on a farm in rural Maryland come to run a website called Refugee Resettlement Watch? Well, I, I think it's an interesting story. I was basically just doing your usual, the usual mom stuff, taking my kids to soccer games and that sort of thing, and and working here on our farm. And um, about seven, eight years, well, it's eight years ago now, uh, it came to uh, the attention of myself and several other um, concerned citizens that a quote unquote church group called the Virginia Council of Churches had brought refugees into our rural community and pretty much dropped them off. Um, and we were, well, the concern was who was going to take care of these people um, and why did they pick us? How did the Virginia church group get to um, bring refugees to a, a, a county in another state? And so I just started looking into the whole thing, along with some other of my women friends. We just started doing our own little bit of research. And the bottom line is we simply wanted to understand how the program works, who was calling the shots, who was paying for this, and did we have any say in the matter. And um, we, we started digging into documents and making phone calls and all that sort of thing. And frankly, I was shocked at what I discovered, and I've been hooked ever since. And so this has become my hobby, I hate to use the word hobby, but, but it has become my uh, passion, let's say, for the last um, nearly eight years to um, try to get the information to Americans about this program, which I believe is incredibly secretive. So you talk about a secretive program and you were a truth seeker. What was it in particular that started you down the path of looking at this, not just within your hometown, but across every state in America? Well, call me naive, but I'm a believer in good government. And I think this is an example of a horrific way of running um, any kind of government program. I think that probably the most, the driving passion is that I believe that local communities should have some say and some, and at least the information about what is being brought upon them by Washington. And so I really am driven by the concept that citizens have a right to know what big government far away is planning for their little communities. What have you found is the key issue around refugee resettlement? Not to dance around the issue, but the name of the monograph is Refugee Resettlement and the Hydra to America. So what is the Hydra? And what are the big problems around refugee settlement in 21st century America and even going back to 20th century with the Clinton administration? Right. Well, the Hijra is the, um, Al-Hijra is the Islamic doctrine of immigration. Uh, Muhammad instructed his followers that one of their five responsibilities, now these are not the five pillars that we're used to hearing, but the five responsibilities that, that Muslims are supposed to um to do one of them is to migrate and that migration is a form of jihad and and the refugee resettlement program as it is now constructed in the united states is bringing a large numbers of muslim refugees into the country from countries that hate us 
We've brought over 100,000 Somalis. We have brought over 100,000 Iraqis, and most of the Iraqis are, large percentage of the Iraqis are Muslim. We're about to admit potentially 11,000 Syrians, 93% so far that have come into the country are Muslim, into the country that the United Nations has picked for us. And thus I'm making the case that the refugee resettlement program that is, by the way, where the UN picks our refugees, U.S. State Department distributes them around the country, um, is in fact um, a significant um, contributor to the Hijra to America. You talk about in the monograph the fact that Hijra, Al-Hijra, is a form of jihad. And this ties into a Muslim Brotherhood pamphlet that was collected, I believe, in 1991, where the Muslim Brotherhood talks about killing America from within, sabotaged by America's own hands, and this concept of civilizational jihad. So explain a little bit the theological background which makes you so concerned about the concept of al-Hijra and the increasing numbers of Muslim refugees being resettled in America. Well, as I said, Mohammed did instruct his followers to migrate and to create a caliphate across, the, thus creating a caliphate across the world. And the the Muslims that we are bringing into the country from the countries I have I just named Somalia, Iraq, Syria, just just three of them, are in fact um, just the sorts of Sharia loving Muslims. That, um, that that little book you're talking about, which is the explanatory memorandum, or the little report that you're talking about, the explanatory memorandum that the Muslim Brotherhood was unearthed, um, that is a Muslim Brotherhood document, um, which basically discusses the whole concept of settlement and how to take over our country from within. Give us a sense, because you've delved into the few figures that are available from the federal government. Give us a sense as to the size and scope of refugee resettlement. So in other words, since the Refugee Act of 1980 was implemented, how large has the growth been in Muslim populations in America? And how much is it based on the notion of actual people who are being persecuted or in civil war being resettled because they're seeking to come here and assimilate versus there being a more political reason for it? Let me, let me just say that uh, assimilation is a dirty word, according to the Obama administration, which has just come out with its report on the task force on new Americans, where they want to integrate the uh, immigrants and Muslims, not necessarily assimilate. Assimilate implying that they would take on some American traditions and values. The Those doing the resettling now would tell you that the numbers are less now than they were years ago, and that's true, but there are more numbers now from countries that hate us than in the past, than in the early years of the refugee um, resettlement program. We we are bringing in about 70,000 refugees a year, and I want to say 30 to 40,000 of those are Muslim. But we also have several other legal, and I'm going to emphasize legal immigration programs here that um, that are also bringing Muslims in. Pew Research says that the population of, of Muslims entering the U.S. right now as permanent immigrants um, is 100,000 a year. So um, you can see that the numbers are going to grow from that. Um, let me just also make sure your listeners know that the U.S. State Department has nine major contractors resettling these refugees, 
Um, six of them sound like they're churches, but they're not pass passing the plate on Sunday. Um, and there are 350 subcontractors working in 190 U.S. cities to resettle these refugees. What is the federal, what are the appropriations that go towards this pro the programs that you discuss in the monograph, the total spending on behalf of the federal government for these refugee programs? Sure. And let me just um, say that this, as I said earlier, this program is the United Nations is picking our refugees. It then turns the list over to the U.S. State Department. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security screens the refugees, supposedly, but how do you screen people from failed states where you have no information on them? Then the State Department divvies them out to the contractors. Just that portion of the program, just the federal portion, is a billion dollars a year, and that does not include the welfare benefits that refugees are eligible for immediately upon arrival, which are food stamps, subsidized housing, medical care, kids enrolled in school, and so on and so forth. You mentioned that there are various programs underneath the State Department and underneath other parts of the federal bureaucracy that deal with refugee resettlement. One of the things, one of the programs that I found particularly shocking and almost unbelievable that it was actually named this was the diversity visa program. Tell right. our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, well, we, we, do a, we have a lottery, can you believe it, for 50,000 people from around the world a year so that they can add more diversity to America. And it's for countries that aren't sending large numbers through the refugee program. So, for example, we don't take tons of refugees from Bangladesh, which is Muslim country, but in fact, we get tons through the diversity visa lottery from Bangladesh, or the same with Egypt. So, um, yeah, it's pretty outrageous. I think that's one of the first programs that really needs to go, but the public has no clue that it exists. There's another one called Temporary Protected Status that is anything but temporary. Temporary Protected Status has, is what keeps most of the uh, Salvadorans here, the Guatemalans, the uh, Liberians, what, what, how that were, and now we're doing Syrians. And I heard the other day there's about 11,000 Syrians in the United States eligible for temporary protected status. And that basically means that if something bad happens in their home country and we grant them temporary protected status, the theory was that we shouldn't send these poor people back to this troubled country right now because it was a big earthquake, a big storm, a big whatever. Um, and so we let them stay temporarily. However, every 18 months it's renewed and they never go home. I mean, Salvadorans have been here for 20 years for some big storm or something 20 years ago. I don't even know what it is anymore. And they just never go home. All of those people are waiting for the Obama amnesty to kick in full time and they will be here forever. Two, two follow-up points that I think are also very valuable that, that you raise in the book. One is the fact that of the Syrians who will likely ultimately be absorbed in America, they have not been absorbed by other Arab countries in the region, which is interesting in and of itself. And another stat that your book led me to find was on the notion of diversity visas. I think you cited a number like last year we accepted, or maybe it was this year we're accepting, call it 500 Saudi Arabians through the program. And the State Department breaks down by country the number of refugees coming through that program. And I was shocked by the fact that 5,000 diversity visas were issued to people in Iran. Just just a staggering number of 50,000. 
Right, right. Now, I, I, I should be clear that a lot of the quote-unquote refugees coming, are you talking about the refugees or diversity visa lottery here? But a, but a lot of refugees coming from Iran are not necessarily Muslim. We only I only recently was able to access the State Department statistics for the refugee program for how many, what each religion is the, the rep, that the refugee represents. So we do have those numbers right now. Um, and much to my surprise, for example, on the Syrians, we've brought in, it's less than a thousand so far, but about 93% are Muslim Syrians, not the Christians that you would think we would be bringing in. There's a very tiny number of Christians being brought in as Syrian refugees. Now, on the countries in the Middle East that are not taking refugees, well, first off, you have, you know that in places like Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon, they are taking a lot of these Syrians in as a temporary basis, and the countries are being overloaded with them. But the rich um, countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, UAE, they do not take any refugees. And Saudi Arabia, if any Somali gets in there, they're just shipped right back to Mogadishu right away, and the UN never says a word about it. If we did something like that, there would be um, hell to pay um, if we were shipping Somalis back to Somalia. And in these programs, two elements that I'd like you to delve into a little bit. One is the fact that you basically allege that they're, that the religious groups are typically leftist religious groups in America who are complicit with the federal government in perpetuating these programs. And number two is the fact that there is significant amount of taxpayer funding for the programs that you track on Refugee Resettlement Watch and talk about in this book. So speak a little bit to those points. Yeah, I, perhaps one of the most shocking things that I found when I first got into this, and which most people who hear about this for the first time are shocked to learn, that there are these nine contractors that I referenced earlier. Um, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is one of the largest contractors. There's Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, Episcopal Migration Ministries, World Relief, Church World Service. Um, and the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. I don't want to leave them out. And then there's three secular ones. These organizations are the religious left. Everybody has to understand that we heard so much for years about the religious right this and religious right that. These organizations represent the religious left and are almost exclusively funded by the taxpayer. People are blown away to hear that the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Migration Fund is 97, 98% funded by the U.S. taxpayer. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to the fact that you have this complicity of leftist religious groups, there's also a broader point here, which is the issue of states' rights. You know, forget about national sovereignty for a second. Once you get past that, there's the issue of states controlling their own populations, or at least people in those states having a say over who is resettled in said states. So speak to the state's rights point that you make in the book. There's no state's rights in, in this program, none whatsoever. There should be. Um, increasingly, the federal government, and, and we believe, those of us who have been following this program, believe that the federal government is breaking the law by um, uh, sending unfunded mandates to the states to carry out this program, especially, for example, if a state has signed up for Medicaid, expanded its Medicaid program, those are going to be the targeted states. Um, and so so we have large um, financial responsibilities that will fall in the states and virtually no opportunity for the states to 
stop this, say no, um, or air anything. And certain cities in the United States have begun to, um, to, to fight back. They call them pocket, the federal government calls them pockets of resistance. And, um, and those cities like Manchester, New Hampshire are completely overloaded. They want to be, um, they want to reduce the flow. And these contractors, once they get their foot in the door, there's no getting rid of them. Detractors will make the argument that even if they're concerned about, for example, what we've seen in the Minnesota, Minneapolis area of Minnesota, where you have Somali Muslims, where a decent percentage of them have tried to go back over to North Africa or the Middle East to fight in the jihad, your detractors will say, well, look, the vast majority of Muslims are A, peaceful, and B, don't seek to create a caliphate in America and don't necessarily believe in the same ideology that the Muslim Brotherhood and its proxies believe in. So what would you say to those people who would say that you are fear-mongering or that there's a nativist impulse behind what you're trying to expose? Well, actually, I'm trying to expose the whole program, no matter who's coming, whether it's Muslims or Hindus coming, because I think the driving focus is local communities should have some say as to how their community is going to be changed by people from Washington and church groups making this church, I quote unquote, church groups making decisions for who comes to various towns and cities. I think it's only sensible that, that one should look at what's happening in Europe. Frankly, when the Muslim population reaches a certain level, it begins to demand a compliance to Sharia law or Sharia tenets of, of Islam, and that's what I'm opposed to. I'm a, I, if, um, if Muslims want to come here and assimilate in America and they do their thing and we do our thing, that's just fine. But when they start to push back, as they are in Minnesota, for example, and, and demand certain um, compliance to certain of, of their wishes, um, I think that's wrong. I, th- I just think it's fundamentally wrong. If you had a, a megaphone and you could speak to all Americans, let's say you could run a two-minute ad during the Super Bowl, what would your ad say? What would you want every American to know about the facts that are in this book? I think reiterating again what I what I said earlier, my driving focus and the reason the thing I would want Americans to stand up and demand is to have some say about what is going on in their communities, to be given the facts, they're entitled to the facts. If the federal government and its contractors cannot sell this program by putting all the facts out in public, then um, the program is not a good program. So well, that's what I would say. Every community should stand up and say, tell us what you're planning for my community. How many refugees? From where? How much is it going to cost? Who's paying? And so forth. But, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about, Ben, and we probably should have too, is the financial driving factor behind this, which is cheap labor, which is which goes across all of these immigrant areas. The meat packers out in places like Minnesota have enormous power, and they're working with left-wing foundations to convince local elected officials that this is all just a wonderful thing. Diversity is a wonderful, beautiful thing, but there's really money is driving this. Ben, it is it, and of course, there's the ideology and the need for Democrat voters or the wish for more Democrat voters and stuff like that. 
But there's a big money component to all of this. And that's why you see these elite Republicans supporting this program, because it involves big money, big business. I call it big meat, for example. So you view it as part and parcel, the push for either de facto or de jure amnesty, regardless of whether it's Hispanic immigrants that are in America or any of the other immigrants that come in under these other programs. Right. By the way, I should mention that, like, for example, with the Mead Packers, they they were using illegal immigrant labor for the longest time. Well, first off, they used to pay, I'm told by people who worked in the meat industry, that they used to pay very well good wages to American workers. Then they discovered the illegal alien. Well, that didn't work out so well because they were getting busted. And then the next thing they discovered was the refugee um, re- refugees as a source of cheap labor. And it's especially mean to the refugees, I think, because the refugees are captive, essentially. They can't, like, just walk away from the job or go back to their home country or anything. So they're really captive cheap labor, I call it. So so there's a big driving force there behind it. And it's a convenient thing. We've got the hard leftists who want the Democrat voters joining forces with the elite Republicans who are with the big business and financial backers. And um, it's a terrible combination um, that's a juggernaut, essentially, against the average American citizen worker. Let me just, you have another minute? I want to tell you something I learned in Minnesota. I was just out in Minnesota, just got vilified in the St. Cloud Times yesterday editorial, telling, accusing me of holding secret meetings in St. Cloud. <laughs> St. Cloud is a real hotbed of Islamic um, activism these days, I guess maybe you know. St. Cloud, Minnesota. But I found something then that I'm just starting to look into and, and, and it didn't, you know, it wasn't something I wrote in my little booklet last year because I didn't know about it. And I only just discovered it and I'm very troubled by it. There's a couple of men out in Minis- near St. Cloud who did some research on their own. And here's what they found out. You know, St. Cloud, by the way, Michelle Bachman's district, you know, has been swamped with Somalis. And I think there might be, it might be on purpose. You know, she's now no, no longer a congresswoman, as you know. But they started swamping her district a number of years ago with Somali uh, Somalis. Not that they have enough voting power at this point, but it's just the shoving diversity down the, the throat of the right, of the political right. Um, I think that was a driving force, but not the drive, not the driving force. What I found out was the driving force. There's apparently a foundation called the Blandon Foundation, a left-wing foundation, that takes elected officials, and it's hooked up with, I'm told, the Hormel Foundation, which is a meat company foundation and they take elected officials and they train them and and community leaders they train them for a week with this diversity training and then they send them back to their communities expecting them to carry the water on how wonderful diversity is for the community and as a reward the community gets little grants for little things that they might need like these men said like you know the community might get a new soccer field if they're sufficiently welcoming to the new um way so these this, there's this this cabal of foundations, left-leaning foundations, the meat industry, and elected officials all working together to shove diversity down the throats of, of their communities. And the community is rewarded with grant money if they're sufficiently welcoming to the new Somalis. But then there's this other factor in there, the local cronyism kicks in and the the local builder gets the job of building the new subsidized housing facility that they're going to put the Somalis in or 
um, you know, and the car dealer is happy to get money selling cars to the new refugees so that there's this money component that flows through the whole thing. In the meantime, the average citizen out there who says, whoa, 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 this is changing the culture of our community um, is, is shoved out by this a combination of supposed Republicans in some cases and, um, and foundations, left-leaning foundations and big business saying is that there already is a jobs for jihadis program (laughs) yeah yeah and of course they don't care about any of the jihad aspect of this do you know what i mean they don't care about the muslim immigration aspect of any of this i mean it's all about money i'm sorry to say the name of the book is refugee resettlement and the hijra to america and the author with whom we've been speaking is ann corcoran who runs the site Refugee Resettlement Watch, which I would urge all of our listeners to check out. And thanks so much for speaking with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.